Blog Talk Radio. Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Fatman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, 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 what's cracking? And welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Fatman McDuffie. And tonight we have a great show, but before we get into that, this is brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. So if you haven't checked out the blog, Go there to IamTheFatMan.com and check it out. And I actually did, before I had the guest on the show, I did a real, really good blog on vitamin D. So go check that out, and uh, right after the show, you can get some more facts about uh, vitamin D. So tonight, we have an awesome show. I'm very much looking forward to doing this tonight. I actually found this gentleman um, through Natural News. I downloaded one of the interviews through the Health Ranger because I became intrigued about vitamin D and wanted to see how the sun actually added to our health. So tonight we have Dr. Michael Hollick in the house, also known as Dr. Sunshine, and we'll be bringing him on soon. But before I do, just remember that you can download every show that I've ever done, and I started this show back in September of last year. You can download every show in iTunes. Just go to iTunes and type in Fat Man. That's uh, fat spell with a ph and you'll be able to download those shoot those shows put them on your um ipod and you can listen to them anytime that's how i learned a lot about health don't con- forget to connect with me on all social media uh twitter is the fat underscore man you can connect with me there facebook is facebook.com slash i'm the fat man so connect with me there and also on Pinterest, I'm on Pinterest as well, and I cannot even remember my Pinterest address. I believe it's the, the Fat Man as well, so you can connect with me on Pinterest for those of you who use Pinterest. So tonight, got a great show for you. Uh, Dr. Michael Hollick is on the show with the Vitamin D Solution, so be, pa- be prepared to be mesmerized by the things that vitamin D can do, and also be prepared to know that most of us out here are vitamin D deficient, so we'll be getting into that. So Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Michael Hollick to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Dr. Hollick, are you there? I'm here. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing awesome. So glad that you can be on the show. I know that we had spoken a while back before the show, and you so graciously agreed to come on and share your knowledge about vitamin D, so I'm really, really thankful for that. It's my pleasure. Okay, so let's get into the show. Let's actually get into your journey because you had a rather unique journey. When I was reading in the beginning of the book, you kind of stumbled on to studying vitamin D by accident. A lot of people were looking to study something different, and you stu- you stumbled upon vitamin D. Can you tell us about that? Sure. The long, long and short of it is that when I was at the University of Wisconsin as a graduate student in the Department of Biochemistry, just like you know, most other students are always keen to work in the hottest areas of research. And back then, it was trying to understand how the body utilized energy, mitochondrial oxidation. And so I was keen to hook up with a lab uh, in that area. But they already had large number of postdoctoral fellows and, and you know more senior graduate students. And so as a result, they had no openings. And they said, why don't you go over and see this young professor who's working in vitamin D? And my response was, 
why do I want to work in vitamin D? I mean, I can't think of a more boring subject. And they said, probably because that's the only thing you're going to work in. <laughs> yeah, and um, so you just started to, to work in vitamin D. And let's kind of go back in history, because you had some, something very interesting in the book where you talked about dinosaurs and the fact that well, basically dinosaurs and both uh, Neanderthals and how uh, the Ice Age came about and how that might have contributed to the dying off of both of these <clears throat> both of these species. Can we can we talk about that? Sure. So it turns out that um, we we were curious about when in evolution vitamin D made its first appearance on Earth, and we found that an organism that's existed in the Atlantic Ocean unchanged for 500 million years, the phytoplankton. Uh, when exposed to sunlight, made vitamin D. So vitamin D is likely the oldest hormone on this earth. And then, you know, and, and as vertebrates evolved in the ocean, there was a lot of calcium in the ocean, so they didn't have to worry about putting calcium in their skeletons. But as soon as they left on for terra firma, onto land, they were confronted with a problem because there was no calcium easily available that you had to be able to get it from your diet. And the only way to be able to do that was to be able to eat things that contain calcium and to make vitamin D to be able to utilize that dietary calcium. And so for reasons that we don't fully understand, it was exposure to sunlight on the skin of early life forms, including dinosaurs, that likely helped the vertebrates evolve into what they were. But then 65 million years ago, when that asteroid hit the Earth and caused this fire and, and um, blanket of soot all around the globe, it prevented any sunlight from penetrating to the Earth's surface. And sure enough, they didn't have any food. It was very cold. That's likely to have extinguished most of the dinosaurs. But also, they didn't make vitamin D. And we think that vitamin D was critically important for the bone health, for the development of fetuses. So it's possible that vitamin D deficiency also played a role in the extinction of the dinosaurs because of that asteroid hitting 65 million years ago. In terms of Neanderthals, we've always kind of been taught that Neanderthals were these dark, hairy creatures living in Europe, but it didn't make any sense to me because if you have really dark skin, you can hardly make any vitamin D from sun exposure, and having a lot of hair, you also can't make vitamin D. And it turns out that DNA evidence has suggested that they, in fact, were light-skinned, Celtic skin, and red-headed. The driver in evolution, in my opinion, is really clear because we know that if females are vitamin D deficient during um, their development in the mother, that they will develop infantile rickets. And if they're vitamin D deficient during the first few years of life, they wind up with a flat, deformed pelvis. They basically cannot have um, childbirth under normal circumstances. So within a few generations, actually, pigmentation likely devolved as people migrated north and south of the equator in order for humans to be able to procreate and to survive. Yeah, yeah, and we're talking about, you just mentioned dinosaurs and, and Neanderthals. Getting back to animals, um, I found it really interesting in the book how I believe it was you, you bought your daughter a pet lizard, and you noticed how the lizard would gravitate toward the sun. But you also stated something in there, and you just talked about that again, as far as if they're not getting the sun, it can make their bones weaker. But you had a very good example of that in your book about the lizard. Can you uh, share that with the audience? 
Sure. I joke about it because when I give talks to physicians, I talk about the Jurassic Syndrome. And <laughs> basically 750,000 young at risk every year in the United States, all because of Steven Spielberg and Jurassic Park. And why? Because when the kids went to see Jurassic Park, they wanted to have a pet dinosaur. And what better animal to have than a pet iguana? And my nine-year-old daughter, when she was went to see Jurassic Park with me, she wanted an iguana. And I knew that her iguana was going to die of a calcium and vitamin D deficiency if we didn't do something about it. And so we purchased a light that makes vitamin D. We gave the animal... Um, uh, cream cheese in between the lettuce, so it was getting all the calcium, so it grew well. And it's well known by reptile owners that the, that their reptiles need a source of vitamin D, and they usually have to make it from either sun exposure or to buy a lamp that specifically produces vitamin D in lizard skin. Now, we don't do this for our humans in, in nursing homes, but we do this for our pet iguanas. Yeah. Yeah, and I know down here, I'm actually in South Florida. I'm in Fort Lauderdale, so it's always warm here. And every year about, I would say, around January, February, sometimes late December, we will get like a cold spell, and we have a ton of those things. You can see them running across the street here, those big giant iguanas. But I notice when it gets cold, then they die out. You see a lot of them that die, and I never really kind of made that connection. Now I'm kind of making that connection that they're not getting the heat, they're not getting the sun that they're used to. So it kind of makes perfect sense now that, you know, they die out. Yep. Yep. So let's talk about um, uh, light. Uh, we were talking in your book, it talked more about UVA and UVB. What's the best type for, for human beings and animals sure. as well? So Mother Nature, I think, you know, cleverly designed this system a very long time ago. Somewhere around 0.1% UVB actually penetrates through the ozone layer and gets to the Earth's surface. It's the UVB radiation that, when it enters into your skin, makes vitamin D. It's true that UVB also increases risk for non-melanoma skin cancer. And so Mother Nature, again, cleverly designed human beings to live at different latitudes and have different degrees of skin pigmentation so that they could still take advantage of being hunter-gatherers and making vitamin D in their skin while protecting themselves with melanin, a natural sunscreen, to prevent the damaging effects from excessive exposure. UVA, on the other hand, makes no vitamin D, penetrates deeply into your skin, increases risk for skin wrinkling, and alters your immune system and increases risk for melanoma. So we actually want to have UVA and not UVB. Is that correct? No, no, you want UVB. I mean, sorry, UVB. Very little UVA. And so what you really want is just a combination of two, because I think, again, mimicking sunlight, you know, makes good sense. But what we also know is that even where you're in Florida, if you're exposed to sunlight at 8 o'clock in the morning, even in the summertime, you make no vitamin D. But yet you're getting blasted by UVA radiation like I said, that penetrates deeply into your skin and damages your skin, alters your immune system. Um, and whereas UVB only penetrates into your epidermis, basically, into the very top layer of your skin, and it induces your skin to produce melanin, induces your skin to make vitamin D, 
And also, it helps your skin cells make beta endorphin, which, of course, is the, uh, basically the endogenous opiate that gives runners their high and can also uh, produce um, nitric oxide, which helps the blood vessels relax and, and may help for patients with hypertension. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you there. I know I spend a lot of time on the beach, and I'm always still invigorated if I get a little sun and not too much. And I was one of those people, being African American, we tend to have the stigma that we um, you don't want to get darker. You um, so you don't want. I was always afraid of the sun as I was when I was young. I didn't want to get darker, but now that I'm knowing knowing the importance of the sun, what I will do is just go to the beach, maybe sit out without any. Um, shade or anything like that for 20 minutes and then get up under the shade and make sure I get, you know, my, my vitamin D in. Um, talking about that, how does this whole process come about? You mentioned that the light hits the skin and then it begins to, um, we start making the vitamin D. But explain the whole thing of how that's activated, what's involved with uh, getting the vitamin D into the body. Yeah, so the, basically it's the energy from the ultraviolet B radiation that's absorbed um, into what's called 7-dehydrocholesterol. It's a precursor of cholesterol that's produced in skin cells. And then it's transformed, actually not into vitamin D, but into what we call pre-vitamin D. And pre-vitamin D is unstable at body temperature, and it rapidly converts to vitamin D, and then it enters into your bloodstream. Once it does that, it then goes to your liver and it's converted to the major circulating form known as 25-hydroxyvitamin D. This is the form of vitamin D that the doctor should order to determine if you're vitamin D deficient or vitamin D sufficient. But it's not the active form. It has to now go to your kidneys where it's converted to 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. And it's that active form of vitamin D that goes to your intestine and to your bone to regulate calcium and bone metabolism. And speaking about calcium, um, you mentioned what's that relationship between vitamin D and, and calcium? There's a weird relationship going on there. Sure. Well, it turns out that calcium is very important for uh, basically all metabolic processes in the body, all neuromuscular function. So your body cares about your blood calcium almost more than anything else, and it will preserve it in the normal range. And so typically what vitamin D does through its active form is to tell the intestine to increase the efficiency of absorbing calcium that's coming from your diet. And those major sources are dairy products um, as well as some dark green leafy vegetables and, um, and orange juices now that are fortified with calcium. But if you're not getting enough calcium from your diet, or if you're vitamin D deficient and can't utilize that dietary calcium, what happens is vitamin D now goes to your bones. And it actually helps take calcium out of your bones to maintain your blood calcium. Because like I said, your blood calcium is critically important for all neuromuscular function, all metabolic activities. So without a normal blood calcium, lots of things can go awry. Yeah, um, and with with that being said, um, what are some really good sources of, of vitamin D? 
And that's part of the problem because people assumed, and doctors for sure assumed, that if you have a healthy diet, you're getting all the nutrients that you need, including vitamin D. There's essentially no vitamin D in our diet. So it's mainly dairy products that are fortified with vitamin D. Like I said, some orange juices are now fortified with calcium and vitamin D. If you eat wild-caught salmon, uh, it contains about 500 to 1,000 units of vitamin D. A serving of milk, 8 ounces, or yogurt contains 100 units of vitamin D. Mushrooms are now being exposed to sunlight, so the mushroom industry is beginning to promote that. So you can get about 400 units in a serving, and that's it. The Institute of Medicine recommends that most children and adults up to the age of 70 should be getting 600 units of vitamin D a day to preserve their bone health. You would have to drink six glasses of milk a day in order to do that. And that's the reason why vitamin D deficiency is so common. It's estimated by the Center for Disease Control that about 30% of children and, and about 30 to 40% of adults are deficient in vitamin D, and up to 60% of children and adults in the United States are vitamin D deficient or insufficient, not taking full advantage of the healthful benefits of vitamin D. Yeah. Um, for anyone out there that's listening and you want to call into the show have a que- and have a question for Dr. Hollick, the number is 646-716-9371. Again, 646-716-9371. One of the things I hear that's being promoted as a really good uh, thing for vitamin D or to get more vitamin D is cod liver oil. oil. Do we, will we get enough vitamin D if we have uh, cod liver oil in our diet? Correct. So cod liver oil is a good source, and that's one of the reasons why kind of folklore uh, would tell um, the parents, especially who lived on coastlines, say in England and even in New England, that your child should be taking cod liver oil for good health. And they, net, and they recognize that cod liver oil prevented rickets in children. And there's about 400 units in uh, a serving of cod liver oil, but there's also vitamin A. So you can't take a large amount of cod liver oil because you're going to get too much vitamin A. And so you have to look carefully on the label, um, and some cod liver oil will have about almost 1,000 units in a serving, but typically one serving is about 400 units of vitamin D, which is still not adequate to satisfy your body's vitamin D requirement. Yeah. How high can we go? You mentioned IUs, and you see where, you know, some doctors are saying that you, you, ha- you can have too much vitamin D, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's not enough, and then some people are just totally deficient. But how high can we go? How high have you gone in your clinic with someone with assessing the, the amount of IUs that you give them? Sure. So I've published this uh, in respected peer-reviewed journals, including Lancet, back in 1998. What we did was we gave patients that I believe were vitamin D deficient 50,000 units of vitamin D2 once a week for eight weeks because basically I felt that the vitamin D tank was on empty and a good way to fill it is to give these high doses and fill it, quick it, and fill it quickly. It turns out that the only pharmaceutical form of vitamin D in the United States is 50,000 units of vitamin D2. That's why we picked it. Why vitamin D2, which we could talk about in a little while, is because it was grandfathered by the FDA. There is no 
pharmaceutical form of vitamin D3 available. Supplement manufacturers are now providing the 50,000 units of vitamin D3 to hospitals and pharmacies who are now giving it out um, as a prescription. And once, so that's basically 6,600 units of vitamin D a day for two months. You fill up your tank. And then the problem has been that a lot of doctors are filling up the tank and then they put them on 600 units or 1,000 units of vitamin D and they wind up being vitamin D deficient again six months later. So what I do is I keep my patients on 50,000 units of vitamin D every two weeks forever. It's equivalent to about 3,300 units of vitamin D a day. And we published a paper in Archives of Internal Medicine in 2009 and showed that after six years on this amount of vitamin D, all of my patients were doing well, maintaining blood levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D in the range of about 40 to 60 nanograms per ml, which is ideal. I personally take 4,000 units of vitamin D a day. My blood level on average is about 50 to 55 nanograms per ml. Can you make Can you get too much? Yes, but you have to take huge amounts. And we published a paper in New England Journal of Medicine several years ago where back in the early 90s when vitamin D was not very popular, you could not get a vitamin D supplement in a pharmacy. And so a gentleman went on the Internet and bought a product that he thought contained 1,000 units in a teaspoon. And he took two teaspoons a day because that's what I had been recommending for the past uh, 15 years is mm-hmm. at least a minimum amount for adults, and he became toxic. And so he called me up, and I tell, told him, why don't you send the stuff up? We'll do an analysis for you. It turned out that the company, the Internet company, did not dilute the vitamin D. He was taking pure crystalline vitamin D, two teaspoons a day, a million units a day for more than a wow. year, and he became toxic. Vitamin D intoxication is one of the most rarest medical conditions in the world. And so it's something that we almost never see. You can easily take adults up to 10,000 units a day and not worry about toxicity. We did a study with Dr. Heaney, published it many years ago, showing even after five months on 10,000 units a day, all of these healthy adults remained healthy with no toxicity. Wow, wow. And what are some of the, was that the the gentleman, I remember reading in a book where um, the gentleman, uh, was that the lawyer that called you up and said he was going to sue you? That's correct. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that story from the book. Um, With regards to the whole thing about um, the um, taking 50,000 units a day, what have you noticed if a person stumbles into your clinic and they're vitamin D deficient and you start with the 50,000 IUs, what kind of miraculous things happen? What have you noticed or been able to document about their, their health changes? Yeah, two things, actually. The first is that many patients that I see, especially African-Americans who are at much higher risk for vitamin D deficiency because, like you said, either African-Americans don't want to be exposed to sunlight because they worry about having increased pigment in their skin, and also because their pigment is such a good natural sunscreen, it reduces their ability to make vitamin D in their skin. And so I often see them, especially coming in uh, in the middle of the winter, just complaining of just feeling fatigued, having lots of aches and pains in their bones and muscles, feeling that their joints are kind of creaky and, and, um, you know, a little bit stiff in the morning. 
mm-hmm. and I clearly demonstrate um, that they're vitamin D deficient on physical exam and give them vitamin D, and a month or two later they'll come back and say, you basically have given me back my life, that I feel much better, that a lot of the aches and pains that I've had have, have resolved, and I have a lot more energy. We know that vitamin D deficiency causes muscle weakness, and like I said, global aches and pains in your bones and muscles. It's what's known as osteomalacia. Mm-hmm. The second thing I've found is that, as you know, that there's a lot of controversy out there about medications for treating osteoporosis, and especially what are called bisphosphonates, like alidronate, for example, that's now been associated with osteonecrosis of the jaw and increased risk for fracturing your femur uh, with no trauma. And so many patients I've now been taking off that medication, simply putting them on adequate calcium, about 1,000 milligrams a day from diet and supplements together, total of 1,000 milligrams, and I put them on the 50,000 units of vitamin D every two weeks, walk three to five miles a week, and their bone density is often stabilized. Yeah, and you said something in a book that I thought was really, um, and I've always kind of believed this, is that those people that are taking those drugs, like I believe it's uh, Fosamex and different kind of bone density drugs, that once they get off of those drugs, they actually start losing bone again. Is that correct? That's right. They can. And so we have found that by putting them on an adequate amount of calcium, vitamin D, and exercise, many of them can now maintain their bone density uh, to almost the same degree as if they were on um, some of these bone active drugs. Yeah. So let's get into this whole skin thing because I had um, a question um, regarding that. The And you mentioned, just mentioned that, that uh, those of us who have darker skin have a more, uh, I guess, a harder time uh, making vitamin D. We can make it, but there's a harder, a harder time doing that versus those who have much fairer skin. Can you kind of break that down for us and, and tell us why? Sure. Well, I'll give you some perspective. I mean, Mother Nature, like I said, was very clever. And so people that, you know, as they evolved at the equator are getting blasted by sunlight. And so they needed to have a natural sunscreen. And, and melanin um, produced by melanocytes in your skin cells is the ideal sunscreen. But as people migrated north and south of the equator and the sun's angle was more oblique and very few vitamin D-producing rays were reaching the Earth's surface, they had to lose that skin pigmentation in order to be able to make enough vitamin D. Because we had done studies and showed that if you put on a sunscreen with an SPF of 30, it reduces your ability to make vitamin D in your skin by about 98%. SPF of 15 by about 92%. And, and typically, an African-American has an SPF basically of 15. So it reduces their ability to make vitamin D in their skin by as much as 90%. And we had done a study and showed that if we took a white person and a black person and put them in our tanning bed for the same period of time, that the white person could raise their blood levels 30, 40-fold in vitamin D, the black person, not at all. They needed to be exposed to 5 to 10 times longer, and then they could finally raise their blood levels of vitamin D. And that's the reason why we think that African Americans are at such a high risk for vitamin D deficiency. And we also believe that that vitamin D deficiency in African Americans 
is associated with the health disparity that is well known, where African Americans are at higher risk for type 2 diabetes and uh, heart disease, as well as uh, deadly cancers and infectious diseases. And many studies have suggested that improving your vitamin D status can reduce risk of these chronic illnesses. Yeah, I know they have a definite link for that to breast cancer, and uh, I lost my mom to breast cancer in uh, 2005, and I remember reading a study, and they said that, especially in those northern parts of the country where you are, I believe you're in Boston, um, that African Americans aren't getting enough sun, and there's a lot in the states where, um, I think you mentioned this in a book with a latitude, you're at a, a higher latitude or a northern latitude. Those people are extremely vulnerable to vitamin D deficiency, and which makes them more vulnerable to things like prostate cancers, breast cancers, and things of that nature. Exactly. But that, that was um, at a time when people were being exposed to some sunlight. In this day and age, the message has been that you should never be exposed to one direct ray of sunlight. And the problem is that it's now caused a worldwide vitamin D deficiency. And a, we did a study with Dr. Dong in Georgia, if you can believe it, and we, we um, looked at Georgia teenagers. They were all vitamin D deficient. They had blood levels on average of about 11 nanograms per ml. And when we gave them 2,000 units of vitamin D a day for just four months, we raised their blood level above 30 nanograms per ml. And when we looked at the blood flow um, by using ultrasonography, we could show that there was vascular relaxation as a result of improving their vitamin D status. So contrary to what people think is that, that even living in Florida, you're at risk for vitamin D deficiency because you're taught to go out in the early morning, late afternoon, and wear sun protection the rest of the time. You only make vitamin D from about 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., even in Florida. And if you live above Atlanta, Georgia, you basically cannot make any vitamin D in your skin from November through March. Wow, so that time to actually get your vitamin D in is between 10 to 3. That's correct. And in okay. fact, as you were aware, is that we've recently worked with um, a group out in um, California and have developed an app called D-Minder, D-M-I-N-D-E-R dot info, I-N-F-O, right now for the iPhone and soon to be for the Android. And if you take that um, app, it will tell you when you can make vitamin D in your skin, no matter where you are on the globe. And it also gives you vital information if you put your skin type in as to how long you can stay outside so that you don't damage your skin from excessive exposure to sunlight. Yeah, and speaking of which, I got a question from Joetta from Facebook, and she says that um, her skin burns. She's African-American. She said her skin burns really bad. She said, why does he recommend we stay out twice as long? It's a great question, and, and, you, and she's absolutely right. And this is part of the problem that people don't realize. Your melanin, your melanocytes sit between your dermis and your epidermis. And it's your epidermis that's when exposed to sunlight um, that you're damaging your DNA that is, and is, is inducing sun burning. So in, so in the wintertime, even in African Americans, the melanocytes are kind of dormant. 
So yes, you have black skin, but you don't have the melanin going up into the epidermis to act as a natural sunscreen. So, so usually early uh, in the season, like in April, May, African Americans who go outside for a prolonged period of time can definitely get a sunburn. And once they're exposed to sunlight, now their melanocytes are activated and they begin to make melanin. And that melanin now goes up into the upper layers of the skin and now protects the skin from any further skin damage. Wow. And what, I mean, when she's talking about twice as long, does that mean, because I, I think maybe we correlate that with what you see at the beach where people are just laying out in the sun. And when you look at that, you're like, oh, wow, I can't, I, I'm never, I'll never be able to do that. So kind of describe for us or give us the parameters of how long we should stay in the sun. I know that you don't recommend this whole sunbathing phenomenon that I see down here in Florida where people just stay ungodly amount of hours in the sun, but what do you actually recommend? Sure. So I recommend sensible sun exposure. And, and so, and basically it's time of day, season of the year, latitude, degree of skin pigmentation. And as your Facebook um, person had noted, and your skin sensitivity to the sun. So, for example, for me, if I go out on Cape Cod in a bathing suit uh, and I know that I'm going to get a mild sunburn after being outside for 30 minutes, then I would go out for about 10 to 15 minutes, arms, legs, abdomen, and back exposed to sunlight. I would wear a broad-rim hat or sun protection on my face because you don't really ever want to expose your face since it's the most sun-exposed and most sun-damaged. And then after that 10 to 15 minutes, then to wear either more clothing or to put sun protection on, take advantage of the beneficial effect of the sun, prevent the damaging effects from excessive exposure. And like I said, if you use the app, it will give you guidance for exactly how long you can stay outside for your skin type and not get a sunburn because it tells you when to get out of the sun. And you said that's coming out for Android as well because I know we talked about that off that's the air. Probably within the next couple of weeks. Okay, and that's now it's available for i for all the iPhone users out yeah, there. Yeah, it's been available for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So get, let's get into supplementation. I know um, being in this nutrition thing, a lot of people want you to get things for food, and obviously we we're not able to get uh, enough vitamin D for food. Some people are not able to get in the sun. I know I went to an anti-aging conference this weekend, and the whole hotel in Orlando was basically inside so i didn't have to walk outside to do one thing and i'm realizing that most of our lives are lived inside now most people are not going outside anymore um do you think that actually affects us with the whole the whole vitamin d that we're trained ourselves now to live our whole lives inside well, there's no question that that's the, the, the major cause for the vitamin D deficiency problem. I mean, even in um, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, more than 90% of the population is vitamin D deficient because they avoid sun exposure. Um, and so basically, I always recommend for people to take a vitamin D supplement. And the Institute of Medicine recommends 400 units for um, all neonates during the first year of life, and 600 units for all children and adults up to the age of 70, and 800 units for adults over the age of 70. The Endocrine Society, 
who makes recommendations to physicians how to treat and prevent vitamin D deficiency. And I helped, I chaired that committee with many world's experts in vitamin D. We recommend a range for infants of uh, 400 up to 1,000 units a day is perfectly safe. For children, 600 to 1,000 units is perfectly safe. And for adults, they recommend 1,500 to 2,000 units a day. And if you are obese with a BMI of greater than 30, you need two to three times more vitamin D to both treat and prevent recurrence of vitamin D deficiency. To make it simple, which is what I try to do, because trying to remember all these numbers can sometimes be difficult, because I typically recommend for for the parents that I see with children, certainly during the first year of life, um, 600 to 1,000 units. For children up to teenage years, 1,000 units a day. My opinion, teenagers should be on 2,000 units a day. A study was recently done to demonstrate it was effective. And and as I mentioned to you, we did that study in um, Georgia, African-American teens, demonstrating 2,000 units a day was perfectly safe and improved their uh, blood uh, flow and vascular uh, relaxation. And then for um, adults, 2,000 units a day. And if you're obese, I usually recommend four to six thousand units a day. Yeah, let, I want to get into that and why that, that actually happens. Um, with the supplementation, there's D2 and you always see D3. Which one is the best to supplement with? Right. And what and are some brands? There's a controversy about okay. this because vitamin D2 comes from mushrooms and yeast. And for vegans, they are keen not to take vitamin D3 because the major source is coming from lanolin, from sheep's wool. Even though it's, it's chemically then made from that, uh, vegans really don't want to take vitamin D3. And, and so there was controversy as to whether vitamin D2 was as effective as vitamin D3. We've now done three separate studies to demonstrate that vitamin D2 is as effective as vitamin D3 in treating and preventing recurrence of vitamin D deficiency. And so, in my opinion, vitamin D2 is as effective as vitamin D3. The major supplement on the market is vitamin D3. That's what you make in your skin, and so that's perfectly fine. What, uh, do you have a brand out there that you recommend? I don't. I, what I recommend is any national brand um, because it's usually um, controlled a little bit by the FDA, and we've done studies to look at those national brands. I happen to be a consultant for a company in Alaska, and I particularly like this company because they get their vitamin D from wild-caught salmon, and they even have a product where they put the vitamin D in salmon oil that contains omega-3 fatty acids, which is we think is good for your heart, which is what I take every day. It's called Vital Choice, and um, and I think that that it's a, a good way to improve your vitamin D status. Yeah. Um, getting back to the obesity thing and why people who are obese need to supplement um, more with vitamin D, why is that? The reason is that I think, our, that again, Mother Nature designed the system. So as people migrated north and south of the equator, they were confronted with a problem. So even though they lost their skin pigment to make enough vitamin D, they still couldn't make any vitamin D in the wintertime. 
So what happens is when you make vitamin D in your skin or you ingest it in your diet, it goes into your body fat. And during the wintertime, our hunter-gatherer forefathers likely, as they were using their body fat as an energy source, were releasing vitamin D. However, if you have so much body fat, the vitamin D basically gets diluted in the body fat. And we had done a study and showed that if we took an obese compared to a normal weight individual and either put him in our tanning bed or gave him an oral dose of vitamin D, that the obese person could only raise their blood level of vitamin D by about 45% compared to a normal weight individual. And so that's the reason why we uh, recommend that obese people definitely take more vitamin D to both treat and prevent recurrence of vitamin D deficiency. Would that have anything to do with them? Maybe um, people who are struggling with their weight actually losing weight if they had more vitamin D in the sun, would that affect Maybe in their system, would that affect them? It's a good question. And so there had been some um, uh, hype in the media suggesting that if you increase your vitamin D, that it could decrease your body weight. I don't Mm -hmm. believe that there's really good evidence for that. However, if you're vitamin D deficient and obese, you wind up becoming a couch potato because you feel fatigued, you're tired, your muscles ache, your bones ache, your joints ache. A lot of those symptoms are vitamin D deficiency. So I often find in my obese patients that I give vitamin D to that they have dramatic improvement in their activity. And just increasing their activity, they can help them better control their body weight and to lose weight. Yeah, and uh, speaking of that whole uh, fatigue thing, <clears throat> Chad had a question on Facebook as well. He said, is there a link between vitamin D deficiency and adrenals? Because a lot of people have that adrenal fatigue. Does vitamin D come into play anywhere in there? It's a good question. There really is little evidence that I'm aware of that vitamin D improves adrenal function. There is some evidence that adrenal insufficiency can affect how vitamin D is being metabolized. So there may be some connection there, but it may be the opposite. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that to explain the difference. In reading the book, I know it, but the audience may not know it. Adrenal, I mean, uh, vitamin D deficiency and uh, uh, vitamin D insufficiency. What's the difference in there? Sure. So vitamin D deficiency is defined by the Institute of Medicine um, as a 25-hydroxy vitamin D of less than 20 nanograms per mL because they decided that you need at least 20 nanograms per mL to maximize your bone health. The Endocrine Society looked at all of the literature, and what they concluded was that true, that anything less than 20, you're at risk for having bone disease, but, we, but looking at the literature, there was evidence that even between 21 and 29, that there was evidence of bone disease. And furthermore, many of these other health benefits of vitamin D, reducing risk of autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, common cancers, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, depression, many of those studies were related to people that had blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D of greater than 30 nanograms per mL. So we considered deficiency as a problem for your skeleton and that to maximize skeletal health and all the other health benefits of vitamin D, we recommend that you maintain a blood level of at least 
30 nanograms per ml, and the preferred range is 40 to 60 nanograms per ml. Yeah, and um, going back to this, and I skipped over this, and I should have probably done this at the beginning of the show, but vitamin D, and I did not know this until I started reading more reports, that vitamin D is actually considered a hormone in itself. Explain why that is. Sure. Well, by definition, a hormone means that you make it and that often it enters the bloodstream and then it has some effect on some distant organ. So if you think about it, the fact that you're exposed to sunlight and you make vitamin D in your skin, by definition, it's a hormone. The fact that it has to get into your bloodstream and go to your liver and kidneys to get activated, again, by definition, it's a hormone. Right, right. And... um Talking about this, I actually heard something this at the conference this weekend, and I was at the anti-aging conference, and uh, the gentleman was saying something to the effect of that they are now finding that, and I don't know if you've heard anything about this, that uh, gluten can actually affect the way uh, the body uses uh, vitamin D. They're coming out with some kind of study now um, regarding that, like gluten can affect vitamin D. Have you heard anything about that? Well, what I do know is that I've seen several patients that come in vitamin D deficient, and Mm -hmm. I give them vitamin D to treat their deficiency, and it doesn't work. And now I realize that they probably have silent celiac disease, which, of course, is associated with uh, intolerance to gluten. And so if I then put them on a gluten-free diet and give them vitamin D, they can absorb it perfectly fine and correct their vitamin D deficiency. So there is that relationship with uh, celiac disease and inability to absorb not only actually vitamin D, but even calcium. Yeah, yeah, and then there's more to that. I know that when I was speaking with him, he told me that it affects the ability for the cells to activate the vitamin D, and that's my next question I wanted to get into. I saved the whoppers for last, that certain cells, and you had mentioned this in the book, like your prostate cells and different cells in the body, can actually activate their, their own vitamin D. And that whole gluten thing, which he was telling me about, was affecting that activation of being able to activate the vitamin D. Um, how does... How does a cell or these individual cells actually activate their their vitamin D? Sure. So it turns out that you're correct, that originally we thought it was only the kidneys that could activate vitamin D because patients with kidney disease have essentially no circulating levels of active vitamin D, so it seemed to make sense. But we then began to realize that your immune cells, like your macrophages, activate vitamin D, and the reason it does it is because it, in, it tells the cell then to make a protein that specifically kills infective agents. We're now beginning to realize that prostate, colon, breast, brain, even heart uh, muscle, all have the ability to locally activate vitamin D because they have the enzymatic machinery to be able to activate it. Now, you may ask the question, well, my gracious, if every cell in your body is activating it, are you going to be raising your blood levels of active vitamin D and cause possible problems with calcium? And the answer is no, because, again, Mother Nature is very clever. So what happens is that your cell activates vitamin D locally, say, in your macrophage. After it does its thing, it then induces its own destruction. So it never leaves the cell. And so there was a whole new concept that was 
beginning to come to light um, in the late 1990s where we realized that vitamin D didn't only have effects on calcium and bone metabolism, but had a marked effect on a whole host of organs in your body and regulated up to 2,000 genes, either directly or indirectly, that has effects on reducing risk for malignancy, improving um, blood pressure control, um, reducing risk of atherosclerosis, and reducing risk of autoimmune diseases, just for starters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, question, and I, I guess you know we got a, a little bit more time left in the show, and I got two more questions for you. Actually, this question is from Gina, and Gina says, since vitamin D is linked to so many diseases, why don't doctors check it during exams? And the second part of that question is, if if it's caught early enough, could it help people avoid disease? And I guess you can kind of get into testing. What the what's the recommended method for testing, and then kind of answer those those questions. So what you want to test, of course, is 25-hydroxy vitamin D. The gold standard is what we call liquid chromatography tandem mass spectroscopy that's offered by many labs, commercial uh, labs. But the bottom line is this. The Institute of Medicine and the Endocrine Society do not recommend screening everybody, but rather everybody should be increasing their vitamin D intake, as I had recommended. Right, So you don't need to be screened and spend a lot of money on these screening processes. But if you're obese, if you have sarcoid, if you are pregnant, these are, t- are circumstances where it's reasonable to get a blood level of 25-hydroxy vitamin D if you're vitamin D deficient to appropriately treat it and to follow it to be sure that you've corrected the vitamin D deficiency. So again, children should be taking 1,000, 600 to 1,000 units a day and, mm-hmm. and teenagers up to 2,000 units a day, and adults, 2,000 units a day. And if you're obese, two to three times more. And only, like I said, if you have these other issues, then you can get the blood level drawn. But no, you don't need to be doing this on everyone. The assay for 25-hydroxy vitamin D is the most ordered assay by doctors in the United States. And a large amount of our healthcare dollars is going towards this, and it's not necessary. Yeah. And uh, I was just sitting here thinking as you went over like the hours to stay in the sun, 10 to 3, does that have anything to do with our circadian rhythms? It can because it's the intensity and duration of sunlight that's most important in regulating melatonin levels. We also know that there are vitamin D receptors in your brain and that uh, making vitamin D can improve serotonin levels in your brain, which may be one of the reasons why people feel so well when they're exposed to sunlight, separate from producing beta endorphin. So there are a lot of belief now that the vitamin D may help even patients with seasonal affective disorder. There was one study that demonstrated that it did improve symptoms for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was going to ask you about that, the whole uh, vitamin D and depression and mood and sunlight. Because, I mean, obviously when we are out in the sun, we feel better versus just sitting in some dark, crampy room. <laughs> so, uh, Amen. There's link, yeah, there's a link there. Um, last two questions for you. One is dealing with psoriasis. And I know a lot of people have skin issues out there, and I know that you're kind of on the forefront of this whole vitamin D psoriasis thing. Comment on that, and then... Um, the link of MS and vitamin D. I, um, at some point, I'm looking to get Dr. Terry Walls on the show. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she um, uh, kind of had MS or was diagnosed, and, and now she's kind of brought herself 
out of that whole thing by eating the proper foods and, and whatnot. But contact, uh, comment on that link of vitamin D and MS, but first kind of let's tackle real quick the autoimmune diseases and uh, vitamin D and psoriasis. Sure. So we had shown many years ago that the active form of vitamin D topically applied is very effective in treating psoriasis, so it's still, still the first-line treatment for psoriasis. There's a doctor in Sao Paulo, Brazil, that's giving very high-dose vitamin D to patients with psoriasis and finding that it seems to be helping those patients. I've not personally done that, but his results suggest that that may be an option. In terms of multiple sclerosis, there's really good evidence, even from the Nurses' Health Study out of Harvard, that nurses that had the highest intake of vitamin D reduced risk of developing MS by more than 40%. If you live above Atlanta, Georgia, for the first 10 years of your life, you have a 100% increased risk of developing multiple sclerosis for the rest of your life. And Dr. Cicero down in Sao Paulo is giving high doses of vitamin D, carefully following these patients for their calcium metabolism to be sure there's no toxicity, and finding dramatic improvement in some patients with MS with reduced number of plaques in the brain and recovery of many of the faculties that they lost due to MS. I was down there recently. I met over... 100 patients with MS that came from all over Brazil to meet with me and Dr. Cicero, recounting how they had, were wheelchair-bound, were blind, and were put into his program and had dramatic improvement in the symptoms. And I am now have two patients that I'm beginning to treat with high-dose vitamin D, watching them very carefully to see if we can see the same type of effect. Yeah. And last and final question, um, what is the link and who's – it seems as though, as long as I can remember, the sun has been our enemy. And people are making that out to, you know, stay out of the sun, do all this thing. Who's behind that whole thing? And, and is that starting to change? It's not going to change very, very easily in the United States. The American Academy of Dermatology's mantra is you should never be exposed to one direct ray of sunlight for your entire life. But yet, in the skin cancer capital of the world, Australia, the Australians, one in nine Australians are now being um, determined for their 25-hydroxyvitamin D. 40% of Australians are vitamin D deficient. So what happened? The Australian Cancer Council, Australian Dermatology Society, have now come out with recommendations that, yes, some sensible sun exposure is necessary to satisfy your vitamin D requirement. Just don't be exposed to too much which has always been my message. Yeah, so if you do have skin cancer, can you do, if someone is diagnosed with skin cancer, should they go out in the sun? It depends upon what you're talking about, skin cancer. A long story short is, everybody worries about melanoma. Most melanomas occur on the least sun-exposed areas. Occupational sun exposure decreases your risk for melanoma. There's no evidence, in my opinion, that sensible sun exposure, even if you've had melanoma, increases risk. And there's some evidence to suggest it may actually decrease mortality um, due to melanoma. Non-melanoma skin cancer mainly occurs on face, top of your hands. You should always protect them. But other parts of your body, you could still expose the sunlight, even if you've had non-melanoma skin cancer on your face. 
Yeah, cool. Well, Dr. Hollick, I wanted to thank you for coming on. You have dropped a lot of knowledge and a lot of things. So, and I had a ton of more questions for you, but I know that um, you only are spending an hour with us, and I appreciate your time and know that it is valuable. So if there's anything you want to leave the audience with, do that. If not, um, I wanted to thank you for coming on, and we'll wish you a good night. Well, I hope you all have a delightful day. And needless to say, go to the app, dminder.info. It will help you get some sensible sun exposure. And definitely think about taking a vitamin D supplement. I do it, and I think that there's no downside to doing it, and there's a lot of potential upside. And I wish you all good health. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and happy to come back on again if you wish. All right. Thank you, Dr. Hollick. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a good, have yep. a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So um, hopefully you learned a lot on vitamin D um, as well. And I believe that um, that site for the Get the App is dminder.info. And as he said, uh, that's on iPhone, uh, and it's coming out on Android in another couple of weeks. And I'm going to pick it up on Android because I have a Samsung a Galaxy S4. So I'm probably going to do that. Um, meanwhile, on the next show, we're going to interview Dr. Shauna Young. She wrote a book about uh, naturopaths, very good book. I put it out on Facebook and recommended it. It's a, a joy to read, and she's one of those people that are on the front line who is not afraid to say what she has to say and has really weighed some battles with the pharmaceutical industry. So you will hear that next week, next Wednesday. And then in June, we'll be talking about food combining. And a lot of people combine foods wrong, and that's why they're having a lot of gastrointestinal issues. And we'll have another naturopath on to talk about that. He's a specialist, a specialist in that, and he is someone who's in tip-top physical condition uh, for his age. So you don't want to miss that show. That's going to be an excellent show. And uh, I wish you all a good Memorial Day weekend. I know that's coming up here. I'm looking forward to getting out of town for a little bit and relaxing and enjoying myself. It's been uh, sometime putting the show together, reading books and getting people on to interview them. It can be a process, and but I love doing it because I love giving you the best health information. So keep tuning in. Again, go to iTunes if you have not gone to iTunes and download the show and listen to the past shows. Uh, shoot me an email if there's someone that you would love to be on the show and you want to uh, have them on. My email is Darren at fat-man.com. So Darren, D-A-R-R-E-N, at fat, that's P-H-A-T-man.com. And, and fat, again, is spelled with a P-H. And uh, just email me and let me know, and I will do my best to get those people on the show. The show is for you, and I want you to have people on who will um, who you want to ask questions and who you're really, really interested in. So uh, get in contact with me at Darren at, Fashman, Darren at fat-man.com. And enjoy your more Memorial Day weekend and be safe. And I will talk to you next Wednesday.